feeling blue what do you do we got stories to see you through that time of the month that time of the month need a fix come get your kicks we got tales by kooky chicks that time of the month that time of the month Hi. Wow. I, uh, man, I have nothing, I can't connect with that story at all. Um, actually, the one thing that bothers me most about that story is that the father didn't want someone to bring more donuts because, honestly, that's all you could have brought to any party. I had. Like, even now, like, I would love more donuts. Like, if anyone has some donuts, like, I would like some donuts. Um, that's all I got for that one. Uh, so let's, let's bring out our last reader, a very funny guy. I think he's in the back corner over there still, Mr. Gary Jenkins. Keep it going for Chris Pilney, everybody! Hey guys, um, how about a hand for all the writers and readers tonight? Weren't they great so far? You poop stories. Poop stories are always good, right? Herman and Patsy, the swingers. Yes, they are. <laughs> Christian swingers. Which are the chickens? He crossed the line already. All right. Folks, I'm glad to be here. Thank you, Zanies. Let's give Zanies a big round of applause. That time of the Woo. I hope you enjoy my story. The name of my story is Rita Lynn. Rita Lynn, okay? Stay with me. Man, oh man. I hope you like it. <clears throat> My therapist looked just like James Taylor. He had moved to Nashville to be a singer-songwriter, but apparently until he got a song cut, he was doing the therapy gig. He had that glassy-eyed, uncomfortably open, welcoming demeanor that I'd seen in progressive rock and roll churches. <laughs> Where everyone was an ex-Grateful Dead following, acid-dropping musician. His edges had been rounded off, and he was soft and touchable, but somehow weakened in his stretchy sweaters. He was the kind of guy friend who stands off to the side, shielding his face in the alley, and says, Hey, dudes, be cool, while two guys are beating the shit out of you. <laughs> In one of our first sessions, he described how he'd spent the morning at the lake meditating and had an encounter with a spider who had spoken to him. I was too shocked to ask what the spider said or if he spoke back. I wondered later if the spider had told him to screw with my life. I should have run, but I was on a budget. And this guy was, surprise, affordable. And come on, James Taylor. 
I told him I'd been raised by crazies who seesawed between the small town, simple love, and family support Loretta Lynn sang about in Coal Miner's Daughter and Apocalypse Now level insanity toward each other and me and how a lifetime of the anticipation of the terror and humiliation of the next explosion had almost been worse than the reality. And I was now trying to navigate life and love after being kicked back and forth like a Baptist banjo at a Church of Christ picnic. It's a lot, it's a lot. It's gonna get easier, stay with me. And things were not going well. I showed him my bold print theme list of things to do. Multi-column, underlined, hyper-organized, topic divided and detailed that I believed would transform me into a goal-accomplishing winner, but was, in fact, smashing my face into the gravelly dirt and guaranteeing I would fail on a daily basis. <laughs> Thus, I felt frustrated and increasingly dejected. Like everyone who had seen the completely unrealistic list of things to do, he laughed uncontrollably. But in that laid-back, reedy, thin-voiced James Taylor way, <laughs> he began to tell me about this new thing that everyone was talking about that he was sure he had and of which he suspected I suffered. It was called ADD, Attention Deficit Disorder. He said, I think you may have this, and I think you can't concentrate. You were unable to get things done, so you are frustrated, and that's why you are depressed. He told me about a book, and I immediately bought it and read it from cover to cover. Now, this accomplishment, by the way, might prove that I did not have ADD. <laughs> but the book described a thing called hyperfocus, where an ADDer could lock on to a task and never stop to eat or even to go to the restroom until it was finished. I decided I probably had this ADD thing. I had learned strategies from the book about managing it with lists and other techniques, but James Taylor <laughs> said when it came to ADD meds, you've got a friend. He got me an appointment with a psychiatrist and typed up something saying he thought I had the ADD. I met with a doc. She prescribed an antidepressant to see if it made me feel different. It did not. She ruled out depression. She, looked me, she hooked me up with my stimulating new friend, Rita Lynn. Also known as Ritalin. Now, the paradox of ADD is that a stimulant has the opposite effect on ADDers. It calms and focuses them. James Taylor asked me, had I ever ingested illegal stimulants? <laughs> well, yes, JT. In fact, I had. Once. Only once. And I remember feeling incredibly focused, positive, clear-headed, and motivated like normal people must feel, as if I could see the steps of my life plan laid out in front of me like chalked hopscotch, hopscotch squares on a street. And I was completely and totally confident that I could skillfully bounce from square to square. I also remembered this awesome perspective disappearing quickly 
as did the supply of stimulant. <laughs> I also remembered waking up baking in the morning sun inside my pickup truck at a rest stop. <laughs> Broke and dry mouthed, feeling like I had been surrounded in my sleep by a group of church teen little leaguers who had beaten me with their tiny bats of shame. So my experience with the illegal stimulant indicated I was a candidate for a legal one. Mom, I wasn't taking drugs, I was doing research. At the time Rita Lynn came into my life, I was devastated from having just broken up with a girlfriend who I loathed, but was codependently missing and craving like a blood-hacking, raw-throated emphysema patient craves a filterless camel. <laughs> I was turning 30 and realizing that tiny voice of God I had been hearing in my head since I was seven, who had been telling me that I was absolutely going to be famous, was now stuttering, <laughs> laughing nervously, shrugging and trying to borrow money. <laughs> I was leaving my childhood dream as a gig, a dream gig as a rock singer at a theme park and realizing painfully that I should have aimed higher. It's <laughs> a lot, I know. <laughs> I was starting life as a full-time self-employed entertainer who was investing all of his money in a newly affordable multi-track recording studio, just like 8,000 other guys in Nashville, Tennessee. <laughs> I was living alone and cycling between wildly optimistic and excited about life's opportunities to crippling, tearful, gut-wrenching hopelessness and obsession with failed dreams. Eeyore to Tigger, Eeyore to Tigger, Eeyore to Tigger, Eeyore to Tigger. But I had a new friend who was going to make everything better, Miss Rita Lynn. If someone had been living with me, they might have pointed out that Rita Lynn wasn't all she seemed to be, but alas. I had no one. This is why married guys live longer. A wife will say to you, you need to go to sleep. You've had enough to drink. You are not going dynamite fishing. Insurance companies' successes are based on studying huge amounts of human behavior data so they can predict the probable health and lifespan of human beings. 30-year-old single men who are musician entertainers do not bode well in these risk assessments. If you tack on the word comedian, sirens and red risk lights start flashing on their huge insurance computers. When I had tried to get disability insurance during this time, I was told that statistically people like me were too great a risk because of our low morals. <laughs> that is what they said. I'm pretty sure I was in the same category as human cannonballs, mafia informants, and bomb diffusers. But I was no longer alone. Really, I had real in. Life with Rita Lynn was great at first. Just like I can imagine life with, was like with her redneck cousin, Crystal Methany. Yes. I was getting shit done. 
Man, I was getting the shit done. I was on the go. Office work, done. Homework, housework, done. Yard work, literally running with the mower. I was a man with a mission. I was full blast on at all times. And guess what? Not hungry. Who has time to eat? I was never great at feeding myself anyway, but Rita Lynn said, who needs food? We aren't hungry. And I believed her. In the morning, we would get up and not eat breakfast. Midday, we would not eat lunch. And then the sun sank down, we would not eat dinner. But we had a drink. Yes, we did. I'm sure there was a lean cuisine or an apple here and there, but for the most part, Rita Lynn whispered, I will fill your belly with myself. Finally, a girl who would cook, with, cook for me. Kind of. Rita Lynn and I were sucking down cigarettes one after another and talking with a fast-forward button pressed. We were full of wisdom and insight and funny stories, and we could barely breathe between words and fuck a pause. Rita Lynn said, we should try to stay up all night. We should just stay up all night every night, and so we did. We painted the popcorn ceiling in the basement. We played the drums. We trimmed the hedges by car headlights. Yes, ma'am. For some reason, it didn't seem weird when she would tell me to puke a couple times a day. Hey, I'm slimming down. We were on the go and pulling my blue, fully equipped, gig-ready, almost-new Chevy Astro van over to the side of the road to blow out what little there was in my stomach. Seemed like a minor inconvenience. So took a gun, light a smoke on our way. Radio blasting Nirvana. Yes. Rita Lynn said, hey, with all this extra time and energy, we should get out more. Go downtown, kick it up. I called an up-for-anything gal singer friend and we headed downtown to see another friend of ours play bass in a band. Rita Lynn liked to walk fast, drive fast, get the fuck to where we were going. No BS. I whipped my shiny blue, almost new passenger van into the parking deck and hopped out. Striding with purpose and confidence toward the club, sucking on a cigarette and smacking my trident gum. Gal singer trailed behind. On the sidewalk, a panhandler told me he had nothing, and Rita Lynn and I went into a 10 minute Anthony Robbins spiel <laughs> about how he had his health. He was an American. He was able to speak, to stand. He had the ability to walk. He had the blessing of life. And in fact, he had so very, very much. And he simply just needed to see it. We told him he had me. And I was his friend. And most importantly, he had God and time and blah, blah, blah. I wish I could remember because whatever Rita Lynn and I said and whatever she told me to say was absolutely brilliant. People gathered around and listened. I was getting teary, intense. But even Rita Lynn had to admit a boundary had been crossed. It was time to move on. So we did. Inside the club, our friend was playing in the hot summer night, the dehydration from not drinking and eating, and a primal voice deep inside screaming for balance, 
cause the tall, frosty glasses of draft beer to look more delicious and appealing than ever before. Suddenly, it was like I had crawled on my hands and knees in my tidy whities across a Walmart parking lot in August. And there was a tray of eight tall, frosty, curvaceous glasses of perfect amber antidote with a half inch of frothy head waiting to be consumed to quench my thirst and to counteract, counteract the synthetic adrenaline Rita Lynn was shooting through my body. I couldn't pour the beers into my body fast enough. One after another, barely swallowing. Applause for the band, small talk with my buddy, laugh, laugh, ha, ha, more beer, more beer. Beer from the table where the people were just sitting. Hey, one more beer, it's time to go. Is anybody drinking that beer? And when we were ready to go, we are ready to go. On to the next adventure, the next challenge, striding out, long, purposeful steps, places to be, life to live. Before we left, Rita Lynn somehow negotiated a 12-pack of bottled beer from the waitress. As we stepped back into the parking lot, I was concerned to see that the black and white striped reflective wooden parking stick had been lowered and was blocking our exit. Rita Lynn said, this will not do. Never breaking stride, Rita Lynn and I walked up to it, grabbed it about midway, and raised it with self-righteous enthusiasm. Apparently, the parking garage owners are surprisingly considerate and more concerned about car damage than one would imagine. Because those parking garage sticks are made of balsa wood and saltines. And I was immediately holding about six feet of parking stick that had broken off in my hands. Gal Singer from upstate New York had had plenty of beers too, and this struck her as absolutely hilarious. <laughs> Rita Lynn and I, however, had a sudden moment of clarity. Rita Lynn and I decided, uh-oh, we are now in trouble. Let's go to Away From Here. <laughs> Rita Lynn was strong in my system, but so were the vestiges of my Church of Christ guilt and shame whose voice sounded like a stern and angry early episode, very Southern, somehow corrupt and evil Andy Griffith. <laughs> er, evil Andy Griffith was saying, now you're gonna get it, boy. You're gonna ruin your life, boy. Do the right thing, boy. Run! <laughs> we hopped in the van, gal singer roaring with laughter, tossed the clanking beer bottles between the seats. I fired up the 4.3 liter Detroit V6, slipped it into verse, popped it in the behind there, down to drive, and headed toward the exit with a purpose and determination that only dogs chasing a peanut butter filled treat <laughs> and people who know Rita Lynn can understand. As I approached the exit and passed by the ragged, raw wood of the parking arm, I noticed a gray metal rolling gate that was hanging over the entrance to the door. It was something they pulled down when wanting to totally shut the entrance. The gate was at Van Hood level, and Rita Lynn told me with complete confidence that the gate was not firmly attached, <laughs> that it hung loosely, and if I proceeded as planned, it would gently swing out like a light cotton sheet on a clothesline. 
and it would sweep over the front of the van and the sensation would be akin to memories of my hair being pulled back on my forehead by mother's crisp white sheets as I ran through them on perfect summer days. She also said, cops might be coming, better step on it. <laughs> when we hit the heavy gate, which was made of tank armor that was secured on each side with bolts left over from the construction of the Titanic. And I gunned the whining engine. The sound was horrifying and piercing. Like a pterodactyl was being fed into a wood chipper. While being observed by the horrified screaming neighbors, family, and loved ones of the pterodactyl. The claw-like metal gate started scraping the van right above the black plastic grill and up across the hood, dip, digging deep gashes every eight inches or so into the blue metallic paint, like tiny farm plows exposing the naked gray metal beneath. Having committed this far, my eyes squeezed almost shut. My whole body tensed and stiffened in physical and mental pain, and I froze, but Rita Lynn, not one to panic in a crisis, made the split-second prudent decision to push on through. In hindsight, I can't help but admire the impeccable engineering and the design of this possibly Nazi-made garage door. It was defiant, unrelenting, offered no mercy, and would give no quarter. From the beginnings of time, when the chemical reactions in the sediment rock formed the iron ore, to the time it had been mined from the ground, processed in blast furnaces, smelted, shaped, and formed, it had been preparing for this moment of truth. And it was embracing its destiny, which was to stand up to my van like the 1979 national champion Crimson Tide stood up to the Penn State Litany Lions on that historic gold line and to peel back the paint and primer, dig deep into that metal, and slowly tear off the wipers. <laughs> I gave it some gas. Crack the windshield, more gas, and agonizingly scrape down the entire length of the roof of my mystery machine. Rita, Rita Lynn and I muscled it through, me screaming the whole time, pushing harder and harder like a woman birthing a van-shaped baby from a concrete and steel vagina. <laughs> the screeching and bending metal, me screaming, oh my God, oh God, and the Carol Singer choking and screaming with laughter was ear splitting. When the van finally broke free, it shot out like a dented, scarred, box-shaped turd. In my mind, it was in slow motion, completely airborne. In reality, a homeless guy with his shopping cart, possibly the same one from before, went jumping and flailing out of the way, like he was an overacting extra in a movie. Rita Lynn said, home. And I made the right turn and headed away from downtown toward the interstate. I looked in the rear view mirror. I thought, I'm driving. I'm drunk. Rita Lynn said, I'll drive. The automatic mirrors on each side had somehow been ripped off and were hanging by electrical wires, banging against the side of the van like the blown-off appendages of the guy in Platoon who picked up the booby-trapped Mac box. Sorry. 
stuck in there. I was still muttering, oh God, oh my God, oh my God. And heading for the interstate, girl singer was snorting and crying with laughter. It began to rain. When we picked up speed on the interstate, the mirrors were flopping and banging wildly against the doors and windows. Sometimes sticking on the windows for a few seconds. Like a cloven hoof Satan was running along beside us. <laughs> pounding the van with big black catfish carcasses. Pausing to rest at the sides of their faces with their dead yellow eyes stuck and slowly slid down the window. I was jettisoning all evidence, heaving beer bottles out. They were smashing in the road. More laughter from the girl singer who was now, I was sure, was now insane. I was drunk with guilt and fear, shame, and just plain old drunk, but sobering up fast. Nothing kills a buzz like publicly totaling a vehicle. I headed to my small starter home in Antioch. Don't judge. Thankfully, the garage was clear, and I was able to pull the van inside and shut the door. Gal Singer tried to catch her breath and went her way. I went inside, resigned to the fact that in just a few moments, Metro's finest would arrive to deliver the judgment I had been avoiding my whole life. I had it coming. I deserved it. Evil Andy Griffith said so. I slept in my clothes, waiting. The dawn dawned. I had avoided judgment for now. I assessed the damage and it was bad. The van looked like an empty Bud Light can that some shit-faced good old boy taking a leak had given a half-hearted squeeze and tossed away into the path of a mulching mower. I waited, unable to smile, seeing zero humor or positive, weighted down by the guilt, shame, and remorse like a huge, foul, bare-skinned coat, floppy head still attached that I could barely hold up. I called Gal Singer. I told her, tell no one. She howled with laughter and hung up, still cackling. One day passed, two, three. I imagined sitting in court as they played the grainy black and white video of the homeless guy walking on the sidewalk. The demos, demos restaurant sign in the background, and suddenly the Scooby-Doo van comes crashing through. Like the old school Kool-Aid commercial. Bouncing and sending the homeless guy running his grocery cart teetering. I imagine them stopping the video on my grainy small black and white face. Turned sideways, mouth open. My look of terror being mistaken for a look of clockwork orange menace. I hatched a plan. A friend and I drove back to the parking deck in his mother's Honda Accord. I sat in the passenger seat wearing a fedora and glasses. A Gibson J200 acoustic guitar sat in a case in the back seat. We pulled into the scene of the crime. The gray steel gate was totally unblemished, mocking me from its perch where it had broken me a few nights before. The black and white, white arm was replaced, pointing upward. The attendant was in the booth. We grabbed our ticket and pulled forward. I leaned over and spoke to him through my disguise. <clears throat> hey, we are going to leave this guitar here in the car. Do you have any security cameras?
cameras. Oh, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Okay, thanks. I sat back. I leaned across my buddy again. Hey, if we if we get back late and this gate is closed, uh, how are we supposed to get out? Oh, no problem, he says. Just go the other way. That gate is always open. supposed to end. This is the epilogue to this. Thank you guys. I know it's a long story. It took the $2,500 van repair having a screaming argument with a gas pump and walking through a plate glass window for me to realize that Rita Lynn did not have my best interest at heart. Once I saw the light, I was done with Rita Lynn. My keyboard player buddy gladly let her move in with him. I would go on to manage my ADD if that's what I had, if, if that was even a thing with diet, lists, meditation, exercise, and more realistic expectations. I would see medication as a last resort, and if I ever tried it again, I would wait until the internet was invented so I could read about it and know the side effects. So in hindsight, thank you, Lord. Screw you. Rita Lynn, and screw you, James Taylor. Thank y'all. You heard, go spread the word. They're funny, smart, and so absurd. Happens every month. It's the neatest storytelling.